in James chapter 1. What do George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Christopher Columbus have in common? They were all born on holidays. <laughs> fellow asked his wife what she wanted for her birthday, and she said, I, I don't know, just get me something with diamonds. So he bought her a pack of playing cards. <laughs> Heard about a husband who thought he ought to get his wife something practical for her birthday, so he bought her a cemetery plot. You can imagine her reaction. It was similar to yours. <laughs> Next year on her birthday, he didn't get her anything. She said, why didn't you get me a birthday present? He said, well, you didn't use what I gave you last year. What was your best ever birthday gift? Well, while you may be thinking about your first puppy, or your first bike, or your first car, James gives you the answer. Because in verse 17, he says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Now that narrows it down. The best gifts of all come down from the Father. And what's the very best thing of all the good things? And what's the most perfect thing of all the perfect gifts that the Father has given you? Well, he tells us in verse 18, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let me test your grammar skills. What's the subject of this sentence? It's he, God. What's the object of this sentence? It's us. And what's the verb of this sentence? He brought us forth. Or the King James says it this way because it's really one Greek word. He begot us. We read that little verb often in the Bible. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Well, this verse says, God begot you. And God begot me. See, that's our new birth. That's being born again. That's our salvation. And that's the best ever gift. In fact, when you think about it, physically speaking, your best ever birthday gift was your birth. Every other gift, and the cake, and the ice cream, and the sparklers, and the hats, they're all just to celebrate the best gift, physically speaking, which is your birth. Well, spiritually speaking, your best ever spiritual birthday gift was your new birth, being born again, your salvation. Now this morning, I want us to celebrate that by tearing apart verse 18. But before we jump into the content of this verse, I want to talk about the context. Why does he have this verse 
right here. And if you've been going through this chapter with us, I want to just explain where this fits because James is talking about temptation. He's talking about the process of sin in our lives. And the natural reaction when we sin is twofold. Number one, we deny. And when that doesn't work, we blame. We deny and we blame. I didn't do it. He made me do it. And so in verse 13, James says, when you sin, don't blame God. Because God and evil are mutually exclusive. He can't be tempted and he doesn't tempt anyone. Verse 14, the only person to blame for sin is you. You see, the problem is not in this sinful world. The problem is not your circumstances. The problem is not out there somewhere. The problem is inside. It's your own lust. And then he describes the process in verse 15. He says, when your lust forms an illicit union with your will, you become pregnant with sin. And you give birth to sin and you raise a child. And that's chi- that child's name is death. So he says in verse 16, don't be deceived. Verse 17, you need to understand the nature of God. You can't blame God because He gives only good things and only perfect gifts. And then that's demonstrated in verse 18. Because He brought us forth. It's the exact same verb used in verse 15. In contrast to your lust that births sin and death, God gives birth to you. You see, God is about producing a new creation, not the old creation. God is about producing righteousness in your life, not sin. God is about giving you new life, not death. That's the context. Now I want us to look at the content, and I want us to celebrate this morning. I want us to celebrate our new birth. I didn't bring any sparklers or any hats, any cake or ice cream. But this is an opportunity, if you are a believer, to celebrate your best ever birthday gift. And to look at the context, or the content, I want to ask four simple questions. I've listed them in your bulletin. Number one is what? What is your best ever gift? We've already shown you it's your new birth. And I want you to notice, it's not a cosmetic makeover to beautify your old life. It's not a spiritual surgery to repair your old life. It's not resources to enhance your old life. It's not a fountain of youth to prolong your old life. What is it? It's a new birth into a whole new life. Now you may be sitting here saying, well, Dan, I don't really need a new birth. I like me. I like my life. Why would I need to be born over again? Well, if you don't appreciate this gift, it tells me that you don't understand your condition apart from Jesus Christ. And to just give you a glimpse of how God views you apart from Christ, I want you to go back in your Bible to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Romans chapter 3. 
This is the familiar chapter where he tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But before that, he kind of does some explaining. And in chapter 3 and verse 9, he tells us at the end of that verse that we are all under sin. All under sin's control and all under sin's judgment. We are all under sin. And then he breaks that down. The all, he explains, it's everybody. There are no exceptions. And so look at verses 9 to 12 where he uses the word all and none to let you know you're not the exception. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. What did Adam do when he sinned? He ran and he hid. And we have been running and hiding ever since. There is none who seeks God. Sometimes we use that expression, I'm seeking the Lord. Actually, we're running from Him. That's why Jesus said the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save that which is lost. And then He says in verse 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's the description of the all. It's everyone and it includes you. And then he expands on what it means to be under sin. He tells us the extent. It's everyone. Now he tells us the effect. What it does to an individual. When you go to the doctor... Sometimes you go to get a physical checkup and he checks you out to see if you're okay or not. Well, this is God's spiritual checkup on you. And I want you to notice all the body parts that he talks about when he explains this beginning in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Just like Cain who killed Abel. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a pretty dark picture of your condition pre-Christ of you naturally, apart from Jesus. Your throat is a grave, your tongue lies, your mouth is filled with cursing, your feet are swiftly running to shed blood and cause destruction and misery. You don't know peace, you have broken relationships, and with your eyes there is absolutely no fear of God. You say, well, doctor, what's the remedy? What's the cure? Go back to verse 12 and notice what he says here. He uses an interesting word. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. That word useless literally means rotten or spoiled. Now when Brandon comes to me and says, Dad, this milk is spoiled... It stinks. What do I do? I say, well, let's boil it really hard and see if we can kind of bring it back to some kind of thing we can salvage, and then we'll put it on your cereal. 
No. What do we do with spoiled milk? We throw it away. It's useless. When you have meat that is rotten, what do you do with it? You say, well, let's broil it on high. Maybe we can salvage this thing. No. It's useless. You can't salvage something that's spoiled. You can't salvage something that's rotten. And God looks at your life apart from Jesus Christ and he says, you reek. You're rotten. You're spoiled. I can't boil you and make something out of you. What do I have to do? I have to throw you away. When you throw away spoiled milk or rotten meat, you don't even throw it in the trash in the house. You say, I don't even want it in this house. It stinks. I want it out of here. God looks at you and he says, you are spoiled milk and rotten meat. And his only answer for you is to throw you out and to start over with a new birth. There's nothing salvageable in you as a human being. There's nothing that you show to God and he says, oh, I'm impressed with that. There's a little spot on the meat that isn't bad. No. God says, you're useless. That's our condition apart from Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians 2, in that familiar passage, we all memorize verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Wonderful verses. How does that chapter begin, you remember? In verse 1 it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead in your sins. And then he goes on to say, in which you formerly walked. You've heard of sleepwalkers? You were a death walker. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were walking. And it says you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, which is the devil. He's sort of steering you. My brother walked in his sleep sometimes and I just kind of guide him a little bit. You know, let's get you turned around and back to bed. You're walking through this life dead and Satan is guiding you along. That's your condition. And he goes on to say, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. There's James' subject. The lust of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. What's a ch child of wrath? That's somebody who is destined to wrath. Dead in our sins, walking around with our destiny being the wrath of God. We like, we like people with a big target on our back for the wrath of God to hit us. Now what does a dead man need? Resuscitation? Restoration? Renovation? No. He needs resurrection. And that's what Ephesians 2 talks about because in verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. A dead man needs life. A dead man needs a new birth into a new 
life. And nothing else will work. Now when we talk about being born again, I've heard preachers sometimes say they don't use that term because it's misunderstood today. Well, I have a problem with that because you know who coined that phrase? Jesus did. And when we talk about being born again, it reminds us of John chapter 3. And I want you to go back there for a second. You say, well, Dan, I'm familiar with John 3. Well, let me show you, because sometimes we're, we're so familiar with something, we don't see what it says. John chapter 3 is where Jesus introduced this term. And if Jesus uses the term, I would say it's contemporary. John chapter 3, at verse 1, introduces us to a guy named Nicodemus. Says that, now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, which in that day would be the legal fundamentalist. He not only kept the law, he added to the law. He was a religious man. And here it says he was a ruler, which probably meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is, was the supreme court of Israel. And if you notice in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, and the article is there. So he's not just one of the teachers of Israel. He is the teacher of Israel. In religious circles in that day, he was the Pope. And he comes to Jesus. And verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's a good guy doing good things and saying good things about Jesus. He says, Jesus, you're a teacher, you're a miracle worker, we know you come from God and we know God is with you. That's wonderful. I bet Jesus was impressed. What does Jesus say? Verse 3, Jesus said, truly, truly, I want to tell you something, I need you to listen to it. This is truth. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you would call yourself good. You do good things. You're saying very flattering things to me. But I want to tell you something. Unless you're born again, you're not going to see God's kingdom. You see, Nicodemus is a rotten piece of meat dipped in egg wash and flour, and he's breaded so he looks real good on the outside, and Jesus said, you got the outside all fixed up, but inside, you're still rotten. Inside, you stink, and you're useless. And even you, this religious man in Israel, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is a little confused, so look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You're telling me I have to be born again? Do you want me to crawl back in my mother's womb and come out the second time? Maybe a little sarcasm there. I'm an old man. How am I going to be born again? Notice Jesus' response in verse 5. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Bible students have gone over and over as to what that means, born of the water and the Spirit. I'm not going to tell you all the options. I'm just going to tell you what I think because it's probably right. <laughs> what is Nicodemus talking about? Well, he t- he's talking about climbing back into his mother's womb and being born a second time. And Jesus says to him, you have to be born with water. Now, what's in your mother's womb? Amniotic fluid? What do we call it? Water? When Lindsay was born, her mom woke up in the middle of the night and, and uh, said something's going on, and she started walking down the hall and waddling down the hall, and, and uh, she said, I either peed or my water broke. <laughs> so as a faithful husband behind her, I got down on my knees and I smelled the carpet and I said, we're going to have a baby. Her water broke. Jesus says you got to be born of the water. That's the first birth. But then you have to have a second birth. And that's the birth of the Spirit. And to confirm that, Jesus says it again in verse 6. He really has a parallel verse. He repeats it a different way. He says, that which is born of the flesh, that which is born with the water, is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You have to be born that first time with the water, yes. You have to be born of the flesh, yes. Now you qualify to be born of the Spirit, which is the only way you get into the kingdom of God. And then what does Jesus say in verse 7? He says, do not be amazed, don't be surprised when I say this to you. You must be born again. So when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about adding something to your life. We're not talking about putting a ribbon on a sow. We're not talking about putting a new suit of clothes on a corpse. Salvation is a total transformation. It is a new birth into a new life as a new person. And that is your best ever gift. Second question. Who? Who does it? Well, that should be easy. Who gives a gift? Who decides to give a gift? The giver does. So James says, the giver of every good thing and every perfect gift has given you the gift of salvation, has given you the gift of the new birth. And to confirm that in verse 18, he says, in the exercise of his will, or he chose to, He wanted to. Who is responsible for your salvation? God is. You say, well, wait a minute, Dan. Didn't I have a part in it? Yeah, 
you have the part that you have every birthday when somebody gives you a gift. What do you do? You hold out your hands and you receive that gift. That's all you do. Look, for example, back at John chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. You become a child of God when you receive Jesus Christ by faith. But then notice the next verse. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. It had nothing to do with your will. But of who? But of God. How many of you were born into this world because you wanted to be? None. You're born into this world because your parents wanted you to be, in most cases. And it's the same in the spiritual realm. You are born into this world. Or, I'm sorry, you are born again into the kingdom of God because God chose to do that. It's all about Him. Look at John chapter 3 again where we stopped reading. It's an interesting verse there. Verse 8. Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can hear the wind, but you can't see the wind. You can see the results of the wind, but you can't see the wind. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. It's unpredictable. And he says, so is the operation of the Spirit of God in salvation. I experienced that. One day I was God's enemy, running from God. The next day I was God's child trying to figure out what happened to me. I was born again by the wind of the Spirit of God working in my heart and life. And as his child, 2 Peter 1.4 says, we become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. We not only get his life, we get his nature. If you have a natural child, that natural child has your nature. That's why they grow up to be like you and you can't stand it. As God's child, we have his nature. And what nature is that? It's his perfect nature. Perfect love, unconditional love, grace, mercy. That's our father. And he has made us his child. We have his nature so that we're developing to be like our daddy. But see, you didn't decide to become his kid. He decided to have kids. The Bible says we love him because what? He first loved us. When you popped out of the womb, the first person you probably saw was, well, maybe a nurse. But soon after that, you saw your mother saw your mother's face and she loved all over you and what was your response? You love her back and you never stop loving her. 
in the spiritual realm, we're born again into the kingdom of God and God loves all over us. And what do we do? We love him back. But see, he initiates it. It's his will. It's his desire. It's his love. I didn't even see it coming. It's like the wind. It's like a tornado. You don't see it coming until the last second. It's on top of you. I didn't see it coming. I never would have dreamed it up. It's too great. It's too beyond me to even dream it up that I could be God's child with God's nature. That's beyond my dreams. And even if I did dream it up, I couldn't do anything about it because the Bible says I'm what? Dead. How much can a dead person do? Zero. You see, all I can do is stand in amazement at what God has done for me. I love 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen to it. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. I love that verse because John says, Behold what manner of love. Behold what kind of love. It's like he can't even think of an adjective to describe it. So he just says, behold what manner of love. What kind of love would take dead, useless, stinking, rotten people and transform us by new birth into the children of God with God's beautiful nature and with God's forever life? How do you describe that? And see, if you can't even describe it, then you had nothing to do with it. The who behind our best ever gift is God. Third question. How? How does it happen? Look again at verse 18 of James 1. The little phrase... By the word of truth. It happens by the word of truth. What's the word of truth? This is the word of truth. Or more specifically, in Colossians 1.5, it says the word of truth is the gospel. The good news. What is the good news? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes it as simple as possible. The good news is that Christ died for your sins. He was buried, and he rose again to give you life. That's the gospel message. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God is the source of your salvation. The gospel is the means of your salvation. It's the power that brings about your salvation. In fact, let me show you a verse. You're probably familiar with it. It's just a few pages away. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. He says, For you have been born again. There's our word. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. The gospel is the seed by which you're born again. And Peter says, it's not perishable seed like your natural birth. It's not temporal seed like your natural birth. 
It is imperishable and it is eternal. Now, this is actually a graphic illustration. And it may make some of you uncomfortable, so I will try to be delicate with this. The Greek word in 1 Peter 1.23 for seed is sperma, from which obviously get, we get our word sperm. He's saying that the reproductive seed by which you are born again is the gospel. Naturally speaking, you would not be here today. You would not have been born without your father's seed. Spiritually speaking, you are not going to be born again without your father's seed, which is the gospel. A fellow came into my office on Monday, a fellow who's heard me a handful of times, came into my office visibly broken. And he said, I'm trying to find Jesus. I said, well, let's get a flight to Israel and we'll look for him. No. I explained to him the gospel. And I opened up the word of God and shared it with him. And he found Jesus. He was born again. How? By the word of truth, the gospel. Which brings us to the fourth question and the final question. Why? Why did God birth you into new life? We'll look again at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that, that's a purpose clause, in order that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, what are first fruits? Well, when this was written, farmers didn't have the equipment we do today, they sowed seed by hand. And they would start on one side of their property and they would go out and they would sow seed and walk through the field and sow seed and they would sow and sow and they would start on this side of the property and they'd work their way through one field and another field and another field to the other side of their property. Sometimes it would get interrupted by rain and they'd delay for a few days before they could start sowing again and they would sow and sow and sow until they had covered all their property. Because they did it that way, at the harvest time, it came in at different times. And the place they started to sow first is where the fruits came up first. And if they had to have any kind of serious delays, the fruit on the other side of their property may only be halfway up and not ready to be harvested yet. And so they would start their harvest the same way they did the sowing. They would go out and get those first fruits out of the field. And in the Old Testament, God says to the farmer, when you get your first fruits... I want you to give your first fruits as a sacrifice to me. Now, why does God do that? Well, because God wants the best, number one. And God wanted that farmer to exercise faith by saying, God, I'm going to give you the first fruits, believing that the second and third and fourth fruits are going to come in. 
He didn't let the farmer collect it all at the end and then divide it up and say, I'm going to give God a little bit. You give to God first. First in priority and first in time. Trusting there's more to come. That's the first fruits. Now in this verse, he tells us, you were born again as first fruits. Now what does that mean? Well, let me give you three ideas. Number one, it means you are a taste of what's coming. So you have been born again, and that is inside. You have a new spirit. God has made you altogether new. You have uh, God's divine nature inside of you. But on the outside, you're still the same person. And the Bible says your body is decaying, and the older you get, the more you decay until you're finally gone. You have the first fruits inside, and Romans chapter 8 says something interesting. It says we groan. And the older you get, the more you groan. We groan within ourselves. In fact, he uses the same illustration. We groan like a woman in childbirth. And what do we groan for? We're longing for the redemption of our bodies. I have the redemption of my spirit. I'm a new man living in this old flesh carton, and I can't wait to get my new body to match my new spirit. And so I'm groaning within myself. I got the first fruits. I'm waiting for the rest of what God has promised for me. And not only that, but also in Romans chapter 8, it reminds us that we are the first fruits because we have been born again, but God has plans for a new heaven and a new earth. And it tells us that this present creation is groaning. Again, with the pains of childbirth, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Who's that? That's me and you. I'm not a tree hugger, but I do believe that creation's groaning. And I think sometimes when I walk in the woods, a tree is going, oh, there's a son of God. I can't wait till he's revealed. He's, there's the first fruits of God's promise that there's going to be a whole new creation, a whole new heaven, a whole new earth, a whole new kingdom. We are the first fruits of that. We groan for what God has promised us, a new body. This whole creation is groaning, wanting it to happen. And when does it happen? When we are revealed for who we really are as the children of God. When the inside comes outside and we get the fullness of God's harvest. Second application. Since you are the first, there are more to come. So what should you be doing while you're waiting and longing? You should be sowing more seed. You should be sharing the gospel with other people. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, it says, How will they hear the good news without a preacher? You see, the gospel is God's means for salvation, but the gospel isn't going to get to somebody unless you speak it to that person. You're part of that. And you have a responsibility if you are the first fruits to reach out to the rest of the field with the good news of Jesus Christ. And right after saying that in Romans chapter 10, he says this in verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's so cool. 
In Romans chapter 3, he says, our feet are swift to shed blood. Our feet are useless. They're spoiled. They're rotten. They do nothing but bad things. They kill people. Bring misery. Bring destruction. When I'm born again, guess what? The same feet are beautiful to God. When I am using those feet to deliver the gospel, the life-changing gospel that can cause that person to be born again as well, when I use my feet to take the gospel to somebody else, God looks down and says, those feet are beautiful. Third application. And this one's real simple. First fruit were offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. If you've been born again, your first fruit. So what should be you be doing with your life? You should be giving yourself to the Lord as a sacrifice. God, here I am. You caused me to be born again. I had no part in that. I will be thanking you for eternity for that gift. And so right now, I want to lay my life before you. I don't want to just sit around and celebrate what I've got. I want to give you all that I am. My strengths and my weaknesses. My victories and my failures. I'm going to give it all to you. Let you have me and work through me to accomplish your purposes. That's what it means. It's that practical. God begot you to be first fruits, surrendered to him and then reaching out to those around you that need to hear about Jesus. Let me close with one last question. It's a question I used to ask when I was a kid when my brother gave me a gift. I'd say, well, how much did that cost? Because I got you a gift and I want to make sure I didn't pay too much. How much did it cost God for you to be born again? The symbol is on the table right here. Bread and a cup. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He came and went to the cross for you and me and gave his life. He died so that you might live. That's what it costs. He gave everything. He gave his all. He gave his life to make you a child of God. He demonstrated what sacrifice is. So how could we say, no, I'm going to keep this for myself. I'm going to hang on to my life when the one who paid for that gift gave his all for you. We're going to take the bread and cup this morning as Jesus told us to do. And as we do, I trust that you will be able to celebrate your new birth today. But also I pray that it would challenge you to say, Lord, I want to lay my life down for you. I want to be the first fruits totally offered to you. It's all yours. I'm all yours. Would you do that today? I'm going to give thanks to the Lord for his gift. I'm going to ask you to come to the various tables to partake. If you're not a member here, you're still welcome. It's not our 
Supper, it's the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer, he invites you to come. I pray that before you come, you would have a serious conversation with the Lord about what he's given you and about what you've given him back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread and cup, simple symbols always on the table in the first century common things on the table that have special significance because they remind us of your body and your blood, Lord Jesus, that you gave willingly for us to enable us to be born again, to enable us to have life in you, to give us resurrection spiritually. And Lord, as we celebrate that this morning, I pray that you would cause our hearts to yield to you and surrender to you everything we are and everything we have because you are worthy. We could never give enough to pay for it, but we want to give you our all because we love you and we thank you for what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name.